Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55 for our Old Testament lesson. Good to see a few more of you coming back, and we are looking forward to having um, the uh, Nursery and Children's Church start in April, and if, again, if uh, some would uh, be willing to uh, begin a little earlier for just the nursery during the service, so those that uh, just have young infants could uh, come We would uh, be glad to start it earlier, but please do contact Lindsay for that. I also want to give my personal thanks for your prayers for Nancy and I and um, for God's provision for us. We were able, both of us, to get the uh, vaccine on Friday up in Altoona. Our daughter Laura was scrupulous and searching for a place for us to get it. And with the help of a friend in her church, was able to uh, find uh, uh, the pharmacy up in Altoona that had two people cancel. And she was able to put our names in. So we're grateful. uh, I'm thankful to have it and hope that many of you are able to get it soon as well. Let's read now from the Word of God, the prophet Isaiah speaking to the people of God who were in exile, whose life seemed to be in utter chaos, and yet he speaks a word of hope through the servant of the Lord that would yet come. And in chapter 55, verse 1, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. Neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and which shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thus far, our Old Testament lesson. Please now turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We begin our reading in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for your wonderful invitation to come and buy and eat and be filled without money. For the reminder that our salvation is by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of works, but your gift. Oh, stir in our hearts a great love for your salvation. And for any that do not know you, may you draw them to yourself even this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in the United States, it's very easy to be a Christian in many respects, especially compared to the rest of the world. The very first freedom enumerated and enshrined in the Bill of Rights of our Constitution is freedom of religion. And from the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony all the way to the present day, people have come to our land specifically because of the freedom of religion. But not just for freedom of religion, for many other freedoms that we enjoy as well. The freedoms that give us the opportunity for a better life. Because of our freedoms, if you work hard, if you apply yourself, you can prosper. You can follow your dreams. 
And you can become whatever you want to be. For the Christian in America, this is at the same time a great privilege, but also one of our greatest problems. The promise of the American dream that you, your hard work is the basis for your success actually undermines the promise of the gospel. That salvation is a gift of God's grace and not the result of your hard work. Now many people in recent days have been concerned about a confusion of God and country, the intermixing of politics and religion and people getting confused about who they really ought to follow and what their faith really means. But I would contend for you that the greater problem is not that God and country teaching, though it has many problems about it, but the greater problem is the confusion in believing the promise of the American dream that if you work hard, you will succeed, and letting that unwittingly seep into our thinking about our God and our relationship to him. Let me ask you this morning, do you have confidence that if you were to die today, that you would have a place with God in heaven. And if you did die today, I hope that you don't, but if you did, and you came before God, and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? Why do you think that God would receive you into his glorious heaven for eternity? These are probably the two most important questions that you will ever answer. Why would God let you into his heaven? What do you think? Will he let you in? Why will he let you in? Paul, here in our text, gives the answer to that second question. Why would God let anyone into his heaven? And that provides us with the basis for answering the first question. Do we have confidence that he would let us in? Now Paul is writing this letter to the churches in and around Ephesus. He himself is in prison. He's concerned for the churches. He has labored hard to plant a number of those churches himself to teach and encourage others from a distance and now he's in prison. He's not able to go and to be there and he's concerned that the churches would remain faithful and true, that they would grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. He wants them to prosper. And so as he began his letter in chapter 1, he gave his greeting as was typical, though he modified it in a Christian way, 
speaking of God's grace and God's peace. And then he burst into an amazing doxology, one long sentence, 13 verses long, 11 verses, 11 verses long, just praising God for every spiritual blessing that we as his people have received in Christ. And then he offered a prayer for them, which is typical in letters. They would often begin with a prayer after their greeting. And then in chapter 2, he begins to segue into the body of his letter, where his, his first concern for the church is. And having lifted their eyes in his introduction to heaven and to all the blessings they have in Christ and what he wants them to see, the, the hope of God's calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the immeasurably great power of God for those who believe, he, he shifts it suddenly down back to earth and says, you are in trouble. That in your sins, you're in bondage to your own passions and the evil spiritual powers, and you face the wrath of God. But then last time, there was a big but in verse 4 of chapter 2, but God. And then it went on to extol God's grace, the wonders of his grace, what God had done for us to make us alive. Even we who were dead in sins and and to raise us up and to seat us in the heavenly realms with Christ. Indeed, that in the ages to come, he would use us to be a display of the wonders of his grace. And now he wants to bring all that together. He wants to bring it all together and he summarizes for us the way of salvation. These two verses, perhaps with the exception of John 3.16, are the most important verses summarizing the way of salvation in the Bible. You won't find a greater summary of what salvation is all about, what it means to be a Christian. And so if you've never encountered the Lord Jesus Christ or heard about the way of salvation, these verses are for you. But if you have been a Christian, even for a long time, it may be that you need to remember what your salvation really was all about. When he wrote to the Galatians, He was very explicit that they had a problem. They forgot that salvation was by God's grace. Could it be that we have not been living according to the way we say we believe? Here Paul gives us very important words to consider. Whether you're new to Christianity or a long-time believer. Here we see the need for salvation, the basis for our salvation, and the means for laying hold 
on the salvation that God has provided. First of all, the need for salvation. In verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. You have been saved. In pointing out that they have been saved, he's writing to the church, of course. He's not writing just to the general public. He's writing to the church. He says, by grace, you have been saved. Now, the fact that they have been saved meant that there was a need for them to be saved. It's to declare that you need salvation. Well, from what did they need to be saved? Well, he summarized this need already earlier in this chapter in verses 1 to 3. He says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were trapped. We were enslaved by our passions fueled by evil powers, and then he says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We stood before God, who is holy, as unholy people and rebels, and we were deserving of his anger. Now, some of you might not think you need salvation. You may not feel like you need to be saved. But in truth, the evidence really is there if you will look running throughout your life. Frustration. Have you ever been frustrated? Fear. Disappointment. Anxiety. Depression. Resentment. Anger. Worry. Where do these things come from? They come from that awareness that everything is not right in the world. That there, there ought to be a better way. And the reason that the world is not right is that, in fact, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. You are in bondage to your own passions. You do the things you don't want to do. You don't do the things you do want to do. And all this brings you before a holy God from whom all you can expect is his wrath. Because you won't acknowledge his mercy or his kindness, you're dead set against him. Now, some of you know that you needed salvation and look to God for help. And you have gotten help, but you've forgotten how much you really did need to be saved. Because you're now living as though salvation is really no big deal. I got saved and now it doesn't matter. Maybe you're starting to live the way you once used to live before you learned of the grace that is in Jesus Christ. But it's a big deal how we live because salvation is a big deal. 
what it cost God in sending his own son to die in the place of sinners. Now some of you don't need convincing at all that you need salvation, that your life is at odds with God. You're fearful. You know how much of a sinner you are. You're worried that there's no hope for you, that you never could be good enough. Now, if that's the way you are thinking this morning, you are both right and wrong. The truth is you never could be good enough before God. But you're wrong to think that there's no hope because God has provided hope. Salvation is not about how good you are. Salvation is about how great is the goodness and love of our God. And this brings us to our second point, the basis for our salvation. Paul writes in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, you've been saved through faith. You might remember that last time as Paul was contrasting the wonder of God's working in verse 5 with the reality of our sin that had been in verses 1 to 3, he suddenly burst out in the middle of his explanation about how great God was and says, by grace you have been saved. He was so excited. He was like a little kid at Christmas time who couldn't wait for mommy to get that present and just had to tell her what it was. It was so good. And and that's the way Paul was in verse 5. He's talking about what God has done, making us alive and raising us up and seating us at Christ's right hand and, and for all eternity using us to be a demonstration of how great it is his love. And in the middle of that, he says, by grace you've been saved. Well, he... He repeats it now here because that was, in a sense, really where he was heading. This is the way of salvation. This is what salvation is all about. And we know that now he's explaining all that he had said previously about grace and about sin because of the first word, that word for. It shows that what he's saying is explaining what went before. All these things are true for, if you want to make sense of it, this is what you need to understand. But furthermore, we can't see it in the English text, but in the Greek text, there is actually a definite article before the word grace. For by the grace you have been saved, if you want to do it literally. You don't need to do that, though. Because the definite article is not demanding to be explicitly read, but what it does do is let us know that this grace that he's talking about in verse 8 is the same grace that he was talking about in verse 5, where when he first introduced it, he said, for by grace, and there was no definite article. And then in verse 7, he says this grace is going to be displayed all over. And now he wants us to know that what he's summing up is talking about that grace. 
how marvelous and wonderful it is. It's that grace, for by grace you have been saved. Now what is grace? For some it's a name. My granddaughter's name is Grace, but that's more than a, a name. The word means a beneficent or benevolent disposition or act towards someone to whom you have no obligation to be this way to them. It's, it's doing and being good to someone that doesn't deserve it. And in our case, when we talk about God's grace, His goodness that we don't deserve is not being offered to neutral parties. In fact, His goodness is being offered to rebels, to lawbreakers, to the defiant, making that grace that much more gracious. For not only do we not have an obligation to such grace from God, but in fact we deserve his wrath for our rebellion and disobedience. And this grace, again pointing back, is what in fact moved God to make us alive when we were dead in sins, to raise us up, to seat us in a place of honor and authority at the right hand of God with Christ. All these things in Christ, this is what God has done. This is the basis for our salvation. And so, you see, it's not in us. It's all about Christ. And we see this. Someone has said that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is basically Romans and Galatians in summary form. But when we look at Romans 3, for example, 3.23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means to, to avert the wrath, to turn away God's wrath by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Grace is the goodness of God to sinners. Declaring them just when they should have been declared guilty. But doing so in a righteous manner. That he could be righteous in declaring us righteous even though we had been guilty because of the blood of Christ who was righteous and yet was sacrificed on our behalf. We see this again in Romans 5, verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass for if many died through one man's trespass, referring to Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And then in verse 20 of chapter 5, he goes on to say, 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, the goodness and kindness of God in sending Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what he did. It's not about us. It's not about us. In Galatians 2.21, Paul writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law that is on the basis of your behavior, then Christ died for no purpose. Salvation is not about how good you can clean up your act. How much you and your strength with your own scheming can present a clean face before God. You can't do it. God doesn't look at the exterior. He looks at the heart. And our hearts are dead. We're rebellious against him. The basis for our salvation is grace. It's not about how good or deserving we are. It is about how great and merciful God is sending his son to die for sinners like you and like me. But the question then becomes, how do you lay hold of the salvation that is by grace? Well, Paul tells the means of laying hold of salvation right here in our text. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Now note well, faith is not the one meritorious work that exists that you can do in order to earn your salvation. Faith is not a work. It is not a meritorious work. It is not a work at all. It is simply the channel through which God's mercy flows. It's like the faucet in your house. If you want to get water... It comes through the pipe. There's nothing meritorious about turning the switch. All you're doing is getting water that's already been provided. What happens when you give your spouse or your sibling or one of your children a pretty package all wrapped up for their birthday? What do they tend to do? They reach for it. But reaching for the present, opening your arms, there's nothing meritorious about that. It's not that they wait until you go like this before they even think about giving you a present. Somehow that earns you a present. It's merely the way you receive what's already been given. There's nothing meritorious in that behavior. It's not why the gift is given, it's the way the gift is received. Now there's three aspects to faith that were shown in the Bible. One is knowledge. You need to have knowledge of God's salvation. But you need more than just knowledge, you need to believe and assent that that knowledge is true. It's not merely that you know that Jesus died and rose again, but that you believe it's true, that 
It's more than that other people believe that or say that, but that you assent to that, that yes, that's true. But you need to do more than assent that that's true. You need to believe, you need to trust that that was done for you. It's through faith. It's the way you lay hold of this gift. It's the way you put your hands around it. Now there's a content to that faith. You need to know what, who Jesus is and what he's done. You need to assent that those things are true. And then you need to trust that that is what he did for you. And that's how you're saved. By grace are you saved through faith. Not your performance, through looking to God, not yourself. It has nothing to do with you other than God sent him for you. But he did not send him because he saw something good in you. It's merely out of his love that he offers this gift. And the question is, will you take hold of that gift? Now, Paul is very determined that you understand it isn't about you because he secures the emphasis of grace in two ways. First of all, he says in verse 8, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not about what you've done. You can't somehow save yourself. There was just an article online yesterday about the Ranger program and and the um, uh, what it takes to be a Ranger and about the first two women Rangers and now there's talk of lowering the standards so that they can somehow have an easier role to get in and the first two women that were Rangers don't think the standards should be lowered. But how do you become a ranger? By meeting the standards. By exercising and being able to do all the running and all the carrying and all that's involved. I could never come close to being a ranger. Thank God for those that can. But you see, it's not of yourself. No one has it in them to be saved because every one of us falls short of the standard. It's not of yourselves. It's not in you to do it. It's a gift. If it's in you to do it, it's something earned. Those badges that they wear For the ranger, showing you're a ranger, that's something very impressive. That sets you apart. There's nothing to set you apart. It's a gift. It's a gift. Now, the word this, and this is not your own doing, is interesting because this pronoun is in Greek in the neuter form. And so the question is, what is it referring to? And some people say, well, it's referring to faith. That's the last thing that was mentioned before it, except faith is a feminine noun. 
And so is grace, a feminine noun. And a demonstrative pronoun refers back to the noun of the same gender. However, actions are considered to be singular and neuter, which is what this demonstrative... So he's talking about the whole thing. Salvation, grace, faith, it's all a gift of God. None of this is of your own doing. It's all a gift. All you can do is receive it. And it's also interesting that literally it says, this is not of you, of God, a gift. Thereby creating this strong contrast between you, it's not of you, and God who gave the gift. It's all of God. He draws this sharp contrast. We are not the source of our salvation. You never can be. You never will be. It is impossible. For we all merit the wrath of God. But he wants you to understand this. And so in parallel to not... Of your own doing, he says, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's not only that you can't do it, you can't somehow merit it. You can't figure it out on your own, you can't do it on your own, you can't somehow earn it, so that you can get credit for it in some way. It's not by works. There's no extra credit. You can't write an extra paper in order to get a passing grade. It just is not possible. It's nothing to do with you or what you can do, what you might want to do, what you might try to do. It is all of God. And there's no boasting to be done at all because it's not of you. A proud Christian is an oxymoron because it has nothing to do with me being smart enough or clever enough or spiritual enough or born into the right family or born into the right country or born into the right socioeconomic. it's, It's not about any of that. It's God's gift. And it's given. There's no boasting. And again, in Romans, we read Romans 3, 23 to 26, and Romans 3, 27 follows the same logic that Paul is just summarizing so succinctly here. Verse 27 says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. In other words, if it's of faith, it's not about what you have contributed. It's only about what God has given to you and that you have somehow laid hold of. That's it. 
salvation cannot be earned. Friends, this is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the core of what we believe. This is what God has revealed, what He has done. He sent His Son. He is the one who gives us life when we're dead. He is the one who raises us up when we would be down. He is the one who sits us at Christ's right hand when we would have no other way of getting there. What happened to Christ was done for us. And we have no reason to assume that we have it on our own. It is only by God's gift. We need salvation. We have offended and sinned against God. The basis for our salvation is God's grace and God's grace alone. And the only means of salvation. Is faith. But it's not that our faith is somehow meritorious. God why should you save me? Why believe in your son? No it's, it's really just about Jesus. Why should I save you? Because Jesus died for me. That's laying hold of the package, you see. Jesus died for me. Now, friends, this isn't just something to think about, an interesting theological exercise. This is about your life right now. This is about your life right now. What do you believe? Who do you trust? Is it really in Jesus Christ dying and raising again for your salvation? Or is it in yourself? And this is a matter of urgency. Carol Hardy was driving her son home from a baseball tournament near Houston, Texas. Now, I was startled to read that on Thursday night she was driving home from a baseball tournament. They must have really cleaned things up after that horrible storm down there in Texas. But she was driving home with her son. I, I don't know whether he won or not. I don't know what they were talking about. Maybe he made a great play. Maybe he had to sit on the bench. I have no idea. The only thing I know is that the tire of the truck in front of her suddenly separated from the wheel, flew through her windshield, and killed her instantaneously. She was not thinking about dying. I, I can almost assure you of that. She was thinking about the game. She might have been wondering if her power was on. She might have been wondering if there would be any food available in the local grocery stores. But I doubt very much she was thinking about dying. That could happen to any one of you on the way home from this worship service this morning. Our time is not in our hands. The question is, what are you trusting in? Will you be with God in heaven forever? 
What will you say? What do you believe? If you've never put your trust in Christ, friend, God has given an unbelievable gift. It will take you eternity to totally, fully appreciate the gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ. But you have to embrace the gift. You have to receive the gift. Do not wait. You do not know how much time you have. This is a matter of life and death. I urge you to call upon him even today. And if you need more information, please talk to a friend that brought you or talk to me. This is a serious matter. But it's a glorious matter because it's not about you. It's about God and about Christ and what God has given you in Christ. Now, Christian friend, do you believe this? Does your life show that you believe this, that it's what God has done for you? Do you realize the immeasurable gift that God has given to you? Do you show your gratitude to God by living out your gratitude in the way you honor him? Or are you starting to act like you used to live before you knew that God had such a gift for you? This gift is not one to be taken for granted. It is a great gift. It's an immeasurable gift. May others see this gift in you that you believe is precious. And may they see that you view it as so precious that they want to know how they might have that gift too. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works. You can't earn it. There is no boasting. You and I need the gift of God. You and I need Jesus. I pray that you will believe. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we marvel that you would be so merciful to sinners like ourselves, that we are utterly helpless and hopeless, that we are lost in our sin apart from Jesus that we are so lost in sin that we would not even recognize how lost we are except that you remind us that it's only by grace through faith that we might be saved and we have to think about why do we need to be saved but then we have the opportunity to think about how amazing is your grace. Oh, Lord, please stir up our hearts with love for you at this great gift that we could never, ever repay. 
all we can do is open our arms and our hearts and receive him. Forgive us for the way we take this for granted, for treating this gift so casually. How we pray that you would fill our hearts with a burning love for Christ as we think again at the amazing gift of our salvation in him. May others see him in the way we live and believe. It's in his name.